Amen. It's so great uh, to see him there enjoying himself. I'm sorry, I'm already sweating. I'm going to turn this on right now. Um, I am excited to be here today. I am usually excited to be up here. Um, more so, I would say, since I came in the building. Um, this is one of those messages where I, I thought, okay, I really feel like God gave me a message. I feel like he made it super clear, almost too easy, really. Uh, it's been on my heart for a few weeks. And I keep thinking, well, is it just me? Am I the one that's, is this God speaking to me and I'm supposed to keep it to myself? Is it for me? Because I'll tell you today, it is for me. But then as I hear the worship that we did, the songs that were chosen, Jenny, you were spot on because we're talking about where is God and God is present and God is here. And then to hear of a young man who took his own life because there's no hope, I think that just confirms to me that this is exactly what God has to say this morning. Um, I entitled the message, Where's God When I'm Struggling? Because I feel like these days we are all struggling with something. Whether we want to admit it or not, whether we tell people or not, we're struggling with something. And I want to take a look in the book of Daniel today, and this is just kind of the way that my mind works, the way that I do things. I like to take pieces of Scripture that are very common that we kind of already have a preconceived notion of what this means. Maybe we learned it all the time when we were a kid, and we just come into it and think, oh yeah, that's what that is, blah, blah, blah. And I want to take it and make it so you can apply it to your life today, so it's not just an afterthought of, that was a great story in the Bible. And there are two main stories in the Bible that we probably all know, and that is the first one is of the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In my notes, it says the three Hebrew children. That's not true. They're not trees. They're three. Uh, the three Hebrew children, an autocorrect, you've got to love that, and the fiery furnace, and then Daniel in the lion's den. And what I want to look at today is what happened, but I want to look more at why in the story. Why did this happen? What was the purpose, and who benefited from it? See, both stories, we see God show up in the midst of trouble and in a time of extreme problem. But the reason that I want to bring that up today is because everywhere I look, I see people have problems. We all go through difficult times in our families, our jobs, our health, and sometimes we wonder, where is God in the midst of it all? Why is he allowing this to happen? Why doesn't he just step in and fix it? And I think too often we come to church and we pretend like everything is fine and our lives are great. So when we have the opportunity to come forward for prayer, we think, well, I'm not going to do that, but if pastor says, close your eyes, raise your hand, I'll do that, just so nobody else can know that I'm struggling. But the truth is, when we gather together with other Christians, this is our opportunity to gain support from one another, yet we tend to keep things to ourselves. Now, I'm going to share a secret with you this morning. I have problems, okay? The second secret is I know you have problems. Whether you have told me or not, I know it's true. 
Everybody has problems. Even Christians, when I listen to the radio, I listen to uh, uh, satellite radio a lot in my truck, and I sit here and I notice that all these songs seem to be more and more about struggle, trouble, trial, getting through it, moving forward, and I don't think that's a coincidence. In fact, when I was writing this message, I turned on some music, and I I grabbed my phone, and I hit the uh, Amazon playlist, and I I picked 50 most played Christian songs. And the number one most played Christian song on Amazon is Lauren Daigle, You Say, okay? And if you're not aware of the song, I want to just tell you the first verse and the chorus. It says, I keep fighting voices in my mind that say I'm not enough. Every single lie that tells me I will never measure up. I am more than just a sum of every high and every low. Remind me once again just who I am because I need to know. You say I am loved when I can't feel a thing. You say I am strong when I think I am weak. You say I am held when I am falling short. And when I don't belong, you say I am yours. Now, I don't think it's a coincidence that this is the most played song under the Christian category on Amazon. I don't think it's just because she's a great singer or because it has good music. I think it's the most played song on there because people relate to these words. This is exactly what people are dealing with today. I scrolled down in the 50 songs, and the other songs that I saw in there included God Only Knows, Broken Things, Rescue, Burn the Ships, Rescue Story, Fighting for Me, Scars. Can you see a trend? going in the most played songs right now? Everyone is fighting some kind of a battle, whether it's big or small. And we're willing to listen to these songs on our phone or in our car where nobody else can hear them and admit that we're struggling. But we don't express our struggles to the body of Christ who can actually support us and help us through these things. So I want to take a look at these two stories in the book of Daniel. Two times that were extreme distress. The first one is in chapter 3 of Daniel. Let me give you a little bit of the backstory here so we don't have to go through the entire uh, chapter here. So at this point in time, King Nebuchadnezzar has built a golden image. And he has instructed everyone that when they hear the sound of all these different instruments, they are to bow down and worship this golden image and his gods. So he decided what you do when you build something big and fancy. He had a big dedication. He invited all of the governors, the leadership in the towns. They call them satraps. There's a bunch of different other names, but it's basically all the leadership in all the towns, the mayors, the governors, we would call them today, come and see my great thing. So he said, come and see it. Check it out. And he gave the instructions that when, every, when you all hear the music, You're going to hit the ground and bow down and worship this image. And if anybody refused to do so, they were sentenced to death by being thrown in a giant furnace. So he was pretty serious about this deal. So we're going to pick it up in Daniel. Daniel, I keep saying David, by the way, too, while I was preparing this. So if I say David, I meant Daniel. Daniel chapter 3, verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. 
And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the providence of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered them and says, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not save, serve my gods or worship the golden image I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast in the burning furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? So I want to stop there for a minute. So we've got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which I wish they would have called them something else or not put their name in here so much because I say that a lot of times reading the Scripture. They were brought before the king because they were accused of not bowing down to this idol. Okay, now... Uh, we have to remember that these, these three have been put in leadership role. They were invited to this big party. This is not just, sometimes we think, you know, they were young men, which they were, but they were not like kids. They were in a leadership role over their city. So God, or, uh, Nebuchadnezzar said, we're going to do this. They said, no, thank you. Somebody ratted them out, and Nebuchadnezzar said, bring them to me. And then he said, here's what I'll do. I'll give you a second chance. Since they just told me you didn't do this, I didn't really see you not do it. I'll give you another chance. We're going to go ahead and hit the music again, and then you can hit your knees and bow down, and well and good, and we'll all go about our day. But if not, we're going to throw you in the furnace, and good luck to you. So verse 16 says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, will be able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace was overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the fiery furnace. So King Nebuchadnezzar said, I'm going to give you a second chance. I'm going to cue the music. And they stepped in and said, no, we don't even need the music. You can hit it again, and we're just going to stand here. But we've already made up our mind. We don't need to face the music again. We're not going to do it. It's not going to happen. Now we've got a king that's ticked off. Because not only did you not do it, you just flat out told me you're not doing it. 
You see, we have to make up our mind before we hit the trial how we're going to react. Because if we don't have that solid foundation, we may make a decision in the moment that seems best for us at the time instead of what seems best for our lives overall according to God's word. So they ticked off the king. He had them bound and he instructed the furnace to be heated seven times more than normal. Verse 22 there it said, because the king was, his order was urgent and the fire was overheated. The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, we don't know exactly 100% what kind of furnace this was. Odds are, it was probably an ore smelter or a brick kiln, based on those were the two things that were big in Babylon at the time. Now, both of these were similar in structure, that they would have a gate or some kind of an entrance on the front where you would put the product in that you were going to be heating um, for whatever purpose, but they also had an opening on the top so that the smoke and, uh, and the heat could go out when they released it. So sometimes they were completely built, man-made. Sometimes they were hewn into a cave or a, a mountainside and then uh, hollowed out at the top as well. So either way, when it says that they took them up, they probably actually took them to the top and threw them down in instead of putting them in the front door. Because they were bound, they wouldn't have been able to walk. Um, and this also makes sense when it says that the fire was so hot, it killed those people that were there, and then the three fell in. Because they may have literally been standing up there, throwing them in, and then instantly died, and they fell. So just to kind of give you an idea of what it may have looked like. Either way, the fire was so hot that it killed these men instantly that took them up. Now, to put it in perspective, if this was a brick kiln, those kilns normally ran between 1,000 and 1,300 degrees Celsius. That's 1,800 to 2,300 degrees Fahrenheit. That would be the normal temperature of this furnace. And then the king said, make it seven times hotter than that. Now, I don't know if it actually got seven times hotter or if he was just ticked and said, do it, and they're like, oh, we can't make it that hot. But it was pro the original temperature was between 1,800 and 2,300 degrees Fahrenheit. To put that into perspective, a crematorium runs between 1,400 and 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. So this thing at the beginning was hot enough to cremate a body. This thing is super hot. So when you read the conspiracy theories that say, well, they found a cool spot in there and they each just stood still in the cool spot, there is absolutely no way that that could happen. Not a chance. Not a chance. But this was a very, very real threat. They knew that going into this furnace, there was no coming out of this furnace. If you're in, you're gone. Verse 24 then Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered back and said, I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. 
And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their house laid in ruins, for there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the providence of Babylon. So Nebuchadnezzar looks in there. This would have been in that front door. He would be able to see them and watch them, and he goes, wait a minute. Didn't we throw three guys in there, and weren't they tied up? Because now I see four, and not only is there four, but they're walking in there. They're not tied up. We bound them. I know we tied them up. And one looks like a son of the gods. Now, I want to point out there, he did not say the son of God, meaning Jesus. He said, a son of the gods. He would not have known who the son of God was, but he worshiped many gods. So in his mind, he saw the only thing this could be is a god, and I worship many gods, so it has to be the son of one of those gods that I'm not aware of yet. So he said, it looks like a son of the gods. Now, I know Pastor has talked before about theophanies and uh, the pre-incarnate Jesus, and this is one of those areas where a lot of people think that this actually was Jesus in the fire. Before Jesus came to earth as a baby, that he did show up in multiple places, and that this is one of those things. I personally believe that it is. Either way, if it is or if it's an angel, one thing we can be sure is God sent someone to be with them in the fire. God was present during the fire. I want to point out a couple things here. First of all, God did not deliver them from the fire. He did not make a way around the fire. They didn't get to avoid it. And he could have done that. He could have wiped out Nebuchadnezzar and the whole bunch of them. When they went to throw him in, God could have just gone, poof, you're all gone. He didn't do that. He could have changed Nebuchadnezzar's mind. He didn't do that either. They didn't avoid the fire. They went through it. But God met them in the fire, and he was with them. The second thing I want to point out is God did not take them out of the fire. I don't know why, but in my mind, it may have just been too many cartoons that I saw as a kid or whatever, but that as soon as they were thrown in, everything got really bright and light, and then they just came walking out. That is not what happened. They did not get to end their trial early because God was there. He did not intervene and open the door and tell them to come out. King Nebuchadnezzar said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out. They had to go through the entire trial. God did not step in and say, I'm going to shorten this trial for you. But he said, but I will be with you for the duration. From the moment you go in to the moment you come out, I will be there. Then my favorite verse in the story, 27. The satraps, the prefects, 
governors, and that's not why it's my favorite, because I have to say all that stuff. The king's counselors gathered together, and they saw the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads were not singed, the cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. The fire had no power over their bodies. God didn't have them avoid the fire, but he took the power out of the fire. He took the power away from it. It had zero power to burn them. It had zero power to burn their clothes. It didn't even have enough power to leave a smell on them when they came out. There was absolutely no evidence when they came out that they had ever been in the fire to start with. There was no evidence because that fire was powerless. But the fire was not powerless against everyone because it killed those who threw them in. But God made the fire powerless against those who were serving him and those who love him. What happened next? God got all the glory. They came out, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't come out. They didn't say a word. They didn't go, hey, king, did you just see what happened? They didn't have to say anything. They walked out, and the king, jaw hit the ground. And he said, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If anybody says one word bad about them, we're going to tear them to pieces because no other God can protect them like their God just did. He got all of the glory. A few chapters later, a very similar story there in chapter 6 where Daniel and the lion's den. It's one that I'm sure we've all probably heard before, and there's a lot of similarities in the story, and that's what I want to focus on here. Uh, So we're not going to read the whole account. I'm just going to kind of paraphrase the beginning of it and then hit a few key verses here. So at this time, it was King Darius who thought it was a good idea to have everybody worship him instead of God. So King Darius went out. uh, His his, uh, underlings came to him and said, boy, it would be a great idea if you just made it so for 30 days nobody could worship anybody but you. And he's going, boy, that does sound like a good idea. So King Darius put out a a decree that said, for 30 days, nobody worships anybody but me. No gods, no nothing, no anything but me for 30 days. So the king signed this decree, and anybody that violated it was thrown into the lion's den. So the decree was issued, and just to be sure, everybody knew this was a decree. This was not a secret. This was nothing that was hidden. This was not a loophole or a technicality that Daniel was caught on. Everybody knew about it. You can read in Daniel chapter 6, verse 10, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed. Okay, so we are aware that Daniel was fully aware that it was against the law for him to pray to anyone but King Darius. Not a hidden secret. Nobody caught him, and he didn't sneak around. When Daniel knew the document had been signed, he went into his house where he had windows in his upper chamber. Now he's got the windows open. He's hiding nothing. He's not putting his earbuds in and listening to his worship music quietly to himself. Throws the windows open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before God as he had done previously. He didn't change anything when this decree came out. He didn't say, I'm only going to worship God two times, or I'm only going to do it at night when nobody... No, I'm going to continue to open the window. I'm going to get on my knees right in front of it, and I'm going to pray. I'm sure outside they could hear him. I'm changing nothing 
So just like the three Hebrew children, he made his mind up ahead of time that there was no question in his mind what he was going to do if this happened. And the officials, of course, went by Daniel's house because they were out to get him the whole time anyway. They hear him praying, and they went and told the king about it. But the king here, his reaction is much different than King Nebuchadnezzar. Because if we back up, uh, no, excuse me, if we go to verse 14, we'll see his reaction. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. So he wants to undo what he did. And he labored till sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. So it says the king labored all day. He tried all day to find a loophole to get Daniel out of there. How do I get Daniel off the hook? He spent all day. Now, this is very different than King Nebuchadnezzar. Why? Because Daniel was his favorite. If we back up to verse 3, it says, Then this Daniel became distinguished above all other high officials and satraps because in ex- he because an excellent spirit was within him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So Daniel was already the favorite, which is why they were out to get him. Now, the king had planned to put him in charge of everything. And now he realizes, I just shot my mouth off, and now I have to throw him in the lion's den. This is my number one guy. This is my main guy that I want to entrust my whole kingdom to And now I have to throw him into the lion's den. He had big plans for Daniel. But the problem is that even though the king was the highest name on the earth, he could not stop what he had already put in motion. There was no power on earth that could stop Daniel from being thrown into the lion's den. Verse 16 says, Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions, The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continuously, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and the signet of of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. So just like the three Hebrew children, Daniel didn't put up a fight when he was thrown in there. We don't see that either of them was kicking and screaming and saying, no, don't do this. They had faith. The three Hebrew children said, listen, God will get us through it, and if not, so what? We're still not going to do it. Daniel didn't go, listen, you don't realize, king, I am very important here. You were about to put me in charge of everything. He didn't barter with him. He didn't argue with him. He didn't try to fight his way out of the lion's den. Now, just as a point of reference, at this point in time, Daniel was in his 80s. He is not a young man anymore when he's to be thrown into the lion's den. So the king is up all night worrying about this. The king said, may God protect you, but he doesn't appear real confident that Daniel's God will. Verse 19, then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in, a, in the tone of anguish. 
The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continuously been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you. O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted his God. And the king commanded and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel, same words that were used against the three Hebrew children, people that had maliciously accused them, were cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke their bones in pieces. So the king went on after this to then declare the God of Daniel to be the one true God and the only one to be worshipped, just like Nebuchadnezzar did. God received all of the praise for this. Now, do you see the similarities in these stories? God didn't avoid the lion's den either. He didn't keep Daniel from getting thrown in. He didn't keep him from the trial. It says a stone was placed on top that sealed Daniel in the lion's den, so he could not escape. Just like the three Hebrew children were bound so they could not escape, a stone was put over the mouth of the lion's den so they could not escape. God didn't remove him from the lion's den either. If you notice here as well, the king said, Daniel, come out of there. God didn't end his struggle early either. Just like the men that threw in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the men who accused Daniel were thrown into the lion's den and killed. Now, here's the thing. With the fiery furnace, God took the power out of the fire. With the lion's den, he took the power away from the lions because it said the angel shut their mouths. Now, a lion without a mouth really doesn't have much power. That's what we're afraid of. Nobody's afraid that a lion's going to sit on them. Everybody's afraid that a lion's going to eat them. So he removed the power from the lions. But that beautiful verse at the end says the lions overpowered the ones that were thrown in and broke their bones to pieces. So again, he didn't remove the power from the lions against everyone, just against the ones that served God and loved him. In both times, God was given all of the glory afterward. God was with Daniel for the entirety of his trial, but Daniel still had to spend the night in the lion's den. I'm sure it wasn't comfortable, because I'm telling you, even if I was in a den of lions and their mouths were closed, I'm sure I wouldn't get a lot of sleep. I'm sure they were still pacing around like lions do. They were probably trying to open their mouths. I'm sure it probably didn't smell the best in the lion's den. There may have been fragments of bones or clothes left over from previous visitors to the lion's den that he had to look at all night long. He still had to be with the lions all night. They were not just 
relaxing lions, chilling out like the paintings show where they're laying on his lap and he's petting them. I doubt that happened. They were still lions. He still had to go through it. But when I read this story, my biggest question is, why? Why did he have to go through the lion's den? I mean, it says at the end of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were promoted by King Nebuchadnezzar. But what does this have to do with Daniel? Because Daniel was strong enough in his faith that he already had made up his mind what he was going to do beforehand if he was brought to this decision. And beforehand, the king was already going to set him over the whole kingdom. So Daniel had nothing to gain from going through the lion's den. He didn't need his faith built up. He didn't need his power on earth built up. He had it all. So why in the world did he have to go through the lion's den? This is where I see a lot of people struggle. God, why did I have to go through that? God, how did it benefit me? God, no one is better off because Daniel went through the lion's den. Sometimes we go through struggles and they seem to be for no reason. Whether it's a life change or something happens to a loved one or you get an an illness or a disease or something that you struggle with and you go, okay, God, why? This doesn't seem to help anyone. Sometimes it feels like there's no benefit from the trial. I want to share something with you this morning, um, something I've never shared in a public setting, something that I have struggled with over the past few years. About four years ago, I started having a lot of physical issues. I started having weird things happen. Uh, My hands, I would lose feeling in my hands. Um, I would lose feeling in my feet. I would have migraines where things started just big blotches of black. I would get super dizzy. I couldn't um, go certain places. I would have weird reactions, and I couldn't figure out what it was. I went to the doctor. I went to the neurologist. I went and saw anybody and everybody that they sent me to. And for months, I struggled, and I struggled, and I couldn't figure out what was going on. Um, Ended up, after months of going through everything and things getting worse and getting worse, um, was diagnosed with an anxiety disorder with panic attacks. I started having almost daily panic attacks where I was in the ER, where I would go from sweating one minute to shivering the next minute to sitting there and my feet, legs just start flailing around and I can't control it. And I'm sitting there thinking, I am losing my mind and I'm going crazy. And I don't talk about it because it sounds like I went crazy. And there were so many things that happened through this whole thing, and I struggled with it for a long time. It got to the point where I couldn't go to certain places. People would call me up and say, do you want to go out for dinner? I'd say, sure, I'll meet you there. I'd drive there, and I'd get in the parking lot, and I'd say, I can't, I can't get out of the car. I can't get out of the car. I can't go in the restaurant. I dreaded going to the grocery store. If I needed to go to the grocery store, I would get in, get one thing, and get out. I couldn't stand there for more than five minutes. If I went through a drive-thru, if anybody was ahead of me, I couldn't go. I couldn't sit in the car and feel pinned in at a drive-thru. 
I got to the point where I went from standing in front of hundreds of people and preaching to the point where one Sunday morning I stood in the back of the sanctuary and I said, I can't walk up there. I can't take the offering. I can't do anything. I'm stuck. And if you know me at all, that's not me. That's not who I am. I'm not afraid to go anywhere, talk to anybody, do anything like that, but this had completely overpowered me to the point where I honestly struggled to leave the house by the end. Like I said, I've never shared that before in a public setting. I had my people there, my pastor and my people that I could depend on to pray for me and to walk through it with me. God put people in my path that I could call at 3 in the morning and just say, I don't know what's happening. I just need somebody to be here that would wake up, get dressed, and come over to my house and just sit there. He put those people in my life. I struggled. It wasn't an easy thing to get out of. I did go to the doctor, got medication, got me through it, uh, doing much better now. But I'm telling you, I'm standing here today doing something that four years ago I never thought I would ever be able to do again. It honestly crossed my mind in the depths of that. I thought, I'm going to have to move into a nursing home because I'm not going to be able to take care of myself anymore. It was that bad that I thought this is, it was just continually getting worse and worse and worse. So I had to go through a few things to get it corrected. I got medication that did help. I had people in my life that helped me. I got through it. But it was months and months of struggling. And I went through all of this, and I asked God, why, God? God, I'm just trying to serve you for crying out loud, God. I moved to the other side of the state to take a pastoral position that you called me to to serve you, and what do I get in return? I get slapped with this. Why? What could possibly benefit from this? What are you doing in my life that I'm going to come out of this better than I was before? I knew my Bible. I would pull open Romans 8.28. Got it on the board here. And we know that in all things God works for good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And I sat there and I'd read that and I would say, God, how is this going to be end up in good for me. Because I don't even want to tell anybody about it. I don't even want to talk about it. How is this going to turn out good for me? I mean, we even sing the song, He makes all things work together for my good. And that is very true. But I think sometimes the way we word it, we can not catch what it really means. Because the problem isn't with God's word, it's with our view of God's word. You see, we sing, all things work together for my good. The scripture here, which he does, but we got to expound it a little bit bigger than that. The scripture says he makes all things, plural, work together, plural, for the good of those, plural, who love him. And we ask, what does this help me, singular? How did this help Daniel, singular, And we missed the point. You see, God takes all the things that happen to all of us 
and works them all together for the good of all who love him. So the reality is, God can use my struggle and my victory to help other people. And he can, help, he can use your struggle and your victory to help other people. But we've got this mindset of how does this work in my life? How does this make me better? And that's exactly what I wondered when I came out of that. Yes, it appears that this count really didn't help Daniel at all. He didn't benefit anything from it. But think of the millions of people who have heard this story, and it's given them the courage to stand up for God in the face of trial. God can use my victories to affect other people. Others can be strengthened by our victories. Here, uh, about a month ago, uh, we had a flag football tournament at work. And of course, I jumped right in there. Um, We had four teams, and there were five or six on a team. I was the second oldest person in the tournament. Most of these people were in their early 20s. So, I will tell you, they were all making all kinds of old jokes and laughing at me, and I realize I'm not that old, but comparatively, I was very old. There was an 18-year-old there. I'm like, literally, I'm twice your age. This is ridiculous. I'm more than twice your age. This is crazy. But I started a team, and I was called upon from two other teams that tried to recruit me. So of the four teams, three teams wanted me, okay? So let me just put that out there at this point. Now, we played in these games, okay? And I've got a picture here. Uh, These are the 2019 flag football champions right there. You may notice the guy in the front, in the middle, the team captain receiving the award. Uh, We won our first game 27 to 6, and our championship game 33 to nothing. And before you think that I just drafted a great team, which I did, um, I'm, I'm a salesman. I could definitely get people to play for me. Um, I had multiple touchdown passes, caught a couple, ran one, and according to my team, I led the league in tackles. I had a good, good couple of days. Now, after this picture was taken, the next morning I woke up and put my feet on the floor and almost fell on my face. I hurt so bad. <laughs> and, I mean, I was sore, yeah, but I, I was laughing because I'm like, the bottom of my foot hurts. I'm like, whose foot hurts on the bottom? Like, that's not a thing. Like, this is weird. I went to work 20 minutes early because I didn't want people to watch me walk up the stairs, okay? And, of course, everybody came early and then pointed out to me how I was crawling up the stairs and limping and whatnot. So they gave me a hard time for weeks. But uh, when we were playing, the, uh, the grass, it had rained, so we were slipping a lot, and chunks would come out. And so I fell on my face a couple of times. Uh, There's a video of that. Didn't bring that with. Um, So I posted this picture on Facebook. Now, just to to let you know, I hardly ever do anything Facebook, but, you know, when you win a championship, you put it on Facebook. That's what you do. And one of my uh, great parishioners from the church in Clinton uh, commented uh, because I put hashtag um, not too old yet. And he answered not too old yet, but getting close, and he he focused in on the ankle brace that I'm wearing, and he zoomed in on it. 
And then I pointed out to him, there's also a knee brace here, if you look carefully, because um, <laughs> I have other problems. Um, but I was good, and I wore my knee brace. But I do have a knee issue, and they laugh at me at work about that, too, because it pops and cracks a lot, and I have to get up and down and keep it moving. I can't sit too long. And, um, so I get to work, and they're all giving me a hard time about it, but I honestly had to go to the doctor for my foot because, well, I was going to the doctor for something else, and while I was there, I just said, hey, my foot hurts, too. Because apparently that's what you do when you get old. You just book a doctor's appointment, and then everything that happens between now and then, you just bring it all up. I'm learning that too. So I said, my foot hurts. And then he's, he's looking, and he's like, oh, man, I think, you know, it looks like plantar fasciitis. It's not good. And I'm like, oh, crud. And he goes, well, I'm going to give you an anti-inflammatory. Take it for a couple weeks. Um, see how it is. If it's still bad in a month, come back, and I'll, we'll, we'll deal with it then. I said, okay, great. So... I go to work, I've been taking this for a few days, now my foot feels good because I've been taking the medicine for my foot. Somebody says to me, hey, you look like you're getting around better. I said, yeah, my foot feels a lot better. They're like, no, like you don't even get up from your desk as much as your knee feeling better. I'm like, actually, you know what? My knee does feel better. <clears throat> what happened is I took a medication for my foot and it also made my knee feel better. Because I told my doctor about a struggle I had with one part of my body, he gave me a medication that not only helped that part of my body, but it strengthened another part of my body at the same time. And that wasn't my foot saying, wait a minute, that's my medication, you can't have it. My knee benefited from the fact that I had struggled with a foot injury. Now, to put that in perspective... We are all one body. One part of my body shared with another part of my body, and it was able to be strengthened. In the same way, when we share our struggles with the rest of the body of Christ, we can share our treatments, we can share our victories together as well. In the same way, these two stories in the Bible, when I was... Uh, walking through my trial of anxiety, I don't believe God caused my trial. And God didn't end it early. I walked through the whole thing. But I can tell you this, he was there with me through it all. Even on the days that I couldn't feel it, the days where I said, God, I need something more, and I will tell you this, in this situation and other situations too, if you just coming alongside somebody, praying for somebody, and just being there is really all you need to do. If you've not been in that specific thing, it's not great to give advice. I got some of the worst advice in my life from people who were trying to help, but they gave terrible advice because they didn't understand it. And I'm going, listen. Just pray for me. Just be there. I need somebody when I call to answer the phone. What I don't need, I had somebody tell me, go home, turn on the Christian music radio station, crank it way up and just listen to it. And I'm going, you don't understand. One of the problems I have is hypersensitivity and hearing. A car drives by and I think it just went right through my kitchen. The last thing I'm going to do is go crank anything. Okay? Thanks, but no thanks. But I'll tell you what helped me out. A lady in the church came up to me 
and she was a church council member, be like a board member. She came into my office, and she shut the door, and she just said, hey, I'm going to tell you right now, you're going to get through this. And she said, you know why? Because I did the exact same thing. She said, I have had the exact same issue. I've dealt with it for 10 years. I've been on medication. I've done different things. And she goes, I have walked all the way through this, and you can do it too. And I looked at her, and I thought, well, she's not crazy, and she's still functioning. So maybe I can get through this. And that was where my hope was. Okay, God got her through it. He can get me through it too. I still have bad days. I do. I, last time I preached here, before I came up in the pulpit, I was outside walking around praying to God, going, God, you're going to have to step in. Something's going on here. I was downstairs, had people praying for me because the anxiety was coming up on me again, and I'm going, okay, this is not going to work. <clears throat> I still have bad days. This morning, for a split second, crossed my mind, and I just started laughing, and I thought, yeah, bring it today. Bring it because I'm going to open my mouth and I'm going to talk about it. So all the better if I'm up here just shaking and passing out. That would just be even better. Walk me through the lion's den. But we've got to stop hiding our problems and our pain from each other. We are one body, and when one part of the body hurts, the rest of the body comes to its rescue. When you hurt your foot and you're limping, why do you limp? Because your other foot is taking more of the load. When you cut your finger, your other hand grabs it to stop the bleeding. When you have a toothache, you, don't, you're, you chew on the other side of your mouth. You don't just sit there and continue to chew on a tooth that has a toothache just to prove a point that I'm tough and I can do this. Nobody does that. That would be very stupid. But when we struggle in the body of Christ, we tend to hide it from others so that they don't look down on us. Well, we've got to stop thinking that way. And to be quite honest, we've got to stop looking down on people that are struggling as well because it happens. I couldn't, didn't feel like I could bring it to my church where I was at because I knew there was a number of people that were going to stop listening to anything I had to say from then on because they would say, well, listen, you can't even control your own mind. I don't need to listen to you. And that was not the case. We need to come alongside and help and not hurt. I know we're getting late here now. I'm super late. Sorry. You don't have to listen to me next week. But I think it's super important. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 25 and 26 says, there, there may be no division in the body, but the members shall have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. And if one member is honored, all rejoice together. And I am going to wrap it up here. But I just want to tell you one quick story. I was at a church in Winterset, Iowa, where... Uh, the pastor there was a great friend of mine, a mentor, just somebody who has taught me so much about what truly being a pastor and being a Christian is, just by watching him live his life. And he stood before the church. Uh, we had had uh, sang already, and he stood there and he said, is anybody having, uh, how did he put it? Does anybody have a struggle or a problem right now? Is anybody dealing with anything? And I thought, okay, you know, I've been in church a long time. This is where we take prayer requests, and we pray for people. So is anybody struggling with anything? And one lady raised her hand, and she said, yeah, my refrigerator broke, and I can't afford to fix it, and I can't afford a new one. So I'm thinking, okay, you know, write it down. we got a prayer request, new refrigerator. But he didn't do that. 
He said, does anybody have a refrigerator she can have? And a lady said, well, my parents passed away. We're selling their house. We don't have to sell it with a refrigerator. And he goes, okay, great. Anybody got a truck can pick up the refrigerator? And the guy goes, I do, but I can't take the old one. And somebody goes, I can take the old one. He goes, okay, anybody else have a problem? And I just floored me. I almost fell out of my chair because I'm going, wait a minute. That's what they did in the book of Acts. I was just going to pray for a refrigerator. We could have prayed for her, and that wouldn't have been wrong, but we would have missed out on the opportunity to strengthen the body, one with another. See, in both of these stories in the Bible, the struggle was public, and so was the praise that God received after it. See, when you share your struggles with the body, we need to share them so we can suffer together. Then when you come through the struggle, we can rejoice and give glory to God together. Now, I want you to get this statement here. If you get nothing else today, and I'm going to put it on the board because I think it just, I feel like God just gave me this directly. If we keep the struggle secret, we can't make the praise public. If you don't share what you're struggling with, how are we supposed to rejoice when you come through it? That's why the Bible says when one suffers, all suffer. And when one rejoices, all rejoice, because we are part of the body. When you struggle, talk to people. There are people in this church, you don't have to stand up front and spill your guts to everybody, but grab somebody that you trust, somebody that will pray with you, somebody that will give you godly counsel, somebody that won't go and talk about you behind your back and share it with them. And that's who we should be in this room. If you are struggling with something today, please, please, please don't leave here without talking to somebody about it. Don't look down on people when they do. If you've got nobody to talk to, come tell me. I won't look down on you. I've already spilled my guts to you today about my own problems. I've been there where there were a handful of people I trusted to tell anything because I didn't want to be ridiculed. Don't keep the struggle secret because we want to suffer with you so that we can all rejoice together when God brings us through the trial.